This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, brought to you by Gold Rock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. Welcome to the Definitely Uncertain Podcast. My name is David Ram, and I'm a partner at Gold Rock Capital, the more than 20-year-old multifamily office servicing high net worth investors in Israel and around the world. And with me today is Aswaf uh, Demodoran, who's a professor at NYU uh, Stern School of Business, I think for like 35 years, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and who has written on very timely topics uh, across economics, uh, and most specifically about Today's topic, ESG. Welcome, Aswaf. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, David. Um, so the topic of today, as I mentioned, is ESG a topic that you've written about a couple of times. Uh, stands for environmental social governance, uh, policies which are trying to be placed on various corporations across the world, mainly in the Western world. Uh, I'd love to, first of all, uh, Aswaf, if you can give us your background, a little bit of an intro into yourself, and also uh, you know, how you define uh, ESG, and we can get started on a conversation about if it's good or bad for the world. Uh, David, I teach two classes at NYU. I've taught them for 36 years. One is a corporate finance class, and the other is a valuation class. For those of you who always wondered about what the difference is, corporate finance is about how to run a business, financial principles that govern how you run a business, starting with governance, going through investing, financing, dividends. And valuation is, of course, looking at the same business from the outside saying, what is the value that I would attach to the business? So I, I'm interested in pretty much everything in finance because everything relates either to corporate finance or valuation. When people say, well, this isn't a financial decision, a company, they lie. Because here's my definition of a financial decision. If it involves the use of money, you can dress it up as much as you want. You know, you can dress it up as, you know, this is a public relations decision. It's everything is financial. The question is, what are the payoffs? Why do you do it? So when ESG first came on the radar, as you know, until a decade ago, it's, it's new. This is the, the third or fourth acronym in this space I've seen, right? It was CSR. And I mean, this has a long and I won't say illustrious history, but a long history in business. And it, um, I was, I was, you know, but this time was different. This time was different because unlike the previous times, it looked like the establishment had bought it. Before it was outsiders pushing, so you should care about this, and you know, people at corporate CEOs and investors pushing back, saying that's not the role of business. Mm-hmm. This time around, the, the establishment had bought in. In 2019, if you remember, the business roundtable composed of CEOs of the largest companies in the U.S. put out what I thought was the most ill-thought-out and absolutely nonsensical statement about what a company was about. It was a statement about stakeholder. I mean, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but basically they were saying our objective was is after, the that, to keep- That was after Davos, that uh, the stakeholder the versus two, the Yeah, yeah. And this is why I think CEOs should not go to Davos. I mean, this is mm. the kind of bad thought that gets put in their minds. They basically came back and said, our job in companies is to keep everybody happy. 
Now we should keep it. And they listed out all the different stakeholders and how wonderful they're going to be to each group, which reminded me of a rule I learned very early on. I have four kids and as a family, we'd go on vacations. And if I said, on this vacation, my objective is to keep everyone happy, you know what the end game was? Nobody was happy. So the first reaction I had is, of course, this is the stakeholder wealth idea an absolutely nonsensical idea that got put out there in 2019. And then ESG mm. took off. And of course, you know, big institutional investors jumped on the bandwagon. We'll talk about why they were so eager to jump on. Yeah. You know, BlackRock, of course, in the lead with Larry Fink being the key spokesperson saying, we're going to make this part of our investment decisions. And then every consulting accounting firm that I know of now as an ESGR, everybody's on board. And I might be a cynic, but when everybody's on board, I ask the old legal question, who's benefiting? Yes. And I think that that might be a question that people who are thinking about ESG need to ask is, how is it that a concept we'd never heard of 12 years ago is now front and center in everything that we talk about? Yes. And you can't tell me. Yeah. So go ahead, David. Yeah. No, I just wanted to ask because in terms of, uh, the stakeholder aspect and the ESG aspect, which I think is somewhat correlated, as you as you uh, imply, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, if you want to be a business which is profit centric, you want to make sure your suppliers are happy, your customers are happy, your employees are happy, and making sure that if you're have a factory for the community, absolutely, with the community. So, so isn't it true that stakeholders, or maybe even some some portions at least of the ESG, is in fact typical normative corporate uh, responsibility in order to have at least a mid to long term profit centric approach. It really is injected okay. in that in that normal values. I'm glad you asked that question because actually the first question I get asked in my corporate finance class when yeah. I present this to foreign MBAs: What is it about shareholders that makes them special? Why do we put them front and center? Mm. And the answer is actually very simple because every other stakeholder group gets a chance to contractually negotiate with the company what the terms are. You're a banker lending to a company. You set the terms. There's an interest rate. There's a contractual covenants. You're an employee working for a company. Now, we can argue about how powerful or not a powerless unions are. You have a contract, whether you're a manager or an employee. You're a supplier. You don't supply things on faith. There's a contract. Yeah. Every other group has a contract. You're saying, what about government and society? What do you think taxes are? What do you think regulations are? They're a contract you made with government. You know, one thing I learned in my very first operations research class is you have an optimization problem. You can have multiple constraints, but only one objective. Yeah. You got to pick the stakeholder group that you're going to make your objective and the rest are constraints. And you're absolutely right. When I'm running a company, I can't rip off my suppliers, sell crappy stuff to my customers, walk on the wrong side of the law with the government, because if I do that, then I'm not taking care. So this notion that some are taking care of shareholders is incompatible with caring for the rest of stakeholders is, is at odds both with logic and with the facts. Yeah. Name me one great company that got to be great. So what was, the what was the innovation then in 2019 with, with the, the site that you mentioned? 
Now, that's a good question. It's, I think, part of it was political, which is people, mm. the CEOs of companies felt pressure because they were hearing from the stirrings. I mean, in a, sense, there, in a sense, there are developments in society that are creating political backlash. Yeah. And for CEOs, the easy path was let's keep this process under control by co-opting the process. Yeah. If I were somebody in those movements pushing for change. This should terrify me that CEOs of companies have somehow magically signed on to what I've been pushing for because you've essentially become co-opted. And ESG to me is the flowering of that co-opting of what were you know, ground level movements at companies to try to keep companies on the right side. So, so it's very interesting because obviously we're 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 speaking to each other about uh, language within the corporation and how and how they uh, I guess incentivize themselves to do good. But one of the one of the aspects around this good, whether it's a good idea or bad idea, stakeholders versus shareholders, uh, is the this the natural subjectivity, the nature of the subjectivity of ESG or uh, stakeholder. You know how you how you even define it, how you define what's environmental. Um, I just want to tell you a quick story because I, I know you're based in California. I used to work at a venture capital fund out in California who, who um, was an early stage investor in Tesla. Mm-hmm. And I was a very young, very, very young and arrogant, whatever, uh, <laughs> young, young gentleman in the venture capital fund. And I was the only member of the firm that voted against the deal. And the reason why I voted against the deal was I said, I don't want to have middle class tax dollars funding rich people's second car. Uh, And ironically, that's kind of where we are today, 16 years later with Tesla, by the way. Uh, And there's tax incentives and wealthy people are able to buy the car. And essentially, you're you're punishing um, and reducing financial inclusion, essentially, in order to feel good about the environmental aspects. So there's always these natural um, uh, unintended consequences. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the subjectivity and if you think it's a long-term problem or is there a way to solve that problem on a a level? That's a perfect starting point. Now, if we talk about profitability, we can debate it, but we can measure it. If we talk about value, we can debate it, we can measure it. We all talk about default risk, we can debate it, we can measure it. Hmm, When you talk about goodness, let's forget about this word ESG, goodness. If I ask you what makes for goodness, I wager you take a room of 100 people. Yeah. To get 100. Why? Because we have different value systems coming from the culture, the religion, the background, the upbringing we have as people. And you know where this plays out? If you look at ESG services, they're trying now to attach ESG scores to companies. Yeah. The correlation across services on scores is about 0.35. The correlation on, on bond ratings across ratings agencies is about 0.9496. In other words, S&P and Moody's rate companies on bond default risk, the ratings converge. ESG ratings diverge, and they diverge for a very simple reason. In fact, I won't name the service. In one service, Facebook shows up in the top 20% among the best companies. In another service, Facebook shows up in the bottom 20%. It's no secret. It's privacy. So one of them has a privacy data as one of the criteria. And I think this, and that already should set off red flags, right? Because if you're building an entire discipline on a foundation where people can't even agree what comprises goodness, how the heck are we going to 
you know, agree on the outcomes that come out of this. So you think, what if we have a consensus on something being bad? Guess what? If we have a consensus, you don't need ESG to push it to the forefront. It's going to happen anyway. So when we take things where there's a consensus, if I create um, a company that is going to kill people for hire, I mean, I, that's what I do. There's no way I'm even getting off the ground because 99.5% of people will look at me and say, that is not allowed. You say, what about climate change? Of all of the value issues, this is perhaps the one that has crossed the threshold where more people believe it mm-hmm. than not. It's not universal. Let's, let's be quite clear. Even in this day and age, yeah. there will be people who will disagree with you. But we've reached a point where enough people feel about, you know, about climate change that they're willing to act on it. Yeah. But maybe that's true for the subset of people who can afford to feel that about climate change. So let's put that to the the forefront. But that's the one area where perhaps ESG has made the most strides is in climate change. The question is, are, are you like the rooster that crows and claims that the sun came up? Because this is something that the bigger impact is not coming from listening to Larry Fink lecture me about why I should be good. It's coming from looking at news stories about hurricanes in places which have never had hurricanes and floods in places. You know, the, it's real events that are, might be creating this change. And if that change happens, you don't need ESG to bring it to the forefront. It's going to happen almost by laws, by regulations. So the fact is we're trying to measure something that is not just difficult to measure, but by definition is going to vary across individuals. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting you mentioned climate change because, you know, I guess, you know, despite the fact that you're right, there are people that that still are in, uh, as they call them, denial, as the the word they often use, about people who don't accept the the modeling of of what's going to happen in the future. even if you accept those models, accepting the solutions is another exactly is another thing. For for instance, is banning fossil fuels the way to fix it? I'll say once you get past that initial acceptance, we're still at a point where there's no consensus on where to That's go. That's right. Next. That's right. Interesting. And to it's have a group of people because, because yeah. on the on the on the ESG, you know, when you think about on the you know, you mentioned Larry Fink, which is a great person to mention as this, as the head of BlackRock, who's, I don't know how many, was it $3 trillion? $10 trillion. $10 trillion. Yeah. Ten? He's got $10, tr- ten trillion, yeah. Gee, you he's, the uni- he's, he's the United Way of investing. So Larry Fink, I mean, he's he is quite, um, he's leveraging his, 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 his life views through $10 trillion of assets he manages. Most of what these ESG managers are doing, at least initially, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I want to know where you think it's headed, they use what they call negative screening. So you're mentioning climate change, yeah. oil exclusionary, and gas. Exclusionary, exclusionary ESG, as opposed to include. And there are two ways you can play the ESG right, investing right. game, right? Exclusionary, where you take companies out of your universe because they're bad companies, or inclusionary, where you actually go out and seek good companies, good. right? Interesting. So and, and to, as of now, it seems, and I don't know if you've seen any studies done in this, in this sense, but just, just from the um, inbound requests I get from the family office world mm-hmm. uh, in the high net worth community, it's primarily exclusionary uh, on the exclusionary side, especially mm-hmm. in the liquid markets. And in the e-liquid markets, there is some kind of uh, interest or demand to look for what they call impact investing, which is more the inclusionary 
hey, I want to help with, you know, workforce housing or I want to help with financial inclusion over there. So in the liquid markets, it's just quite difficult to pick stocks or bonds, which are inclusionary. It's much easier to do a negative screening. Is that that what you find as well? Well, that's because the sales pitch got ahead of what the the noble intent Mm -hmm. of ESG was, right? The sales pitch was ESG is good for you as an investor. Once you make that sales pitch, inclusionary ESG becomes almost a non-starter. I mean, for instance, if I invested in a company that provides microfinance and I might have to accept much lower returns than I would elsewhere because it is a costly transaction-bound business. Yes. So again, this is where if there had been more honesty up front on ESG, we'd have much more accepted. So for instance, I know people who would invest in inclusionary ESG. If from the beginning they'd been told, look, you're doing this to help the world. Yeah. And you know what? You might have to accept 50 basis points less. That is honesty. What ESG got ahead of its game was it's so intent on selling ESG to investors as something that would enhance returns that the inclusionary ESG, in a sense, falls to the wayside. The exclusionary is easier because you say, look, let's get rid of bad companies. And it's amazing how the definition of bad hasn't changed in 600 years. Right. It's gambling, it's tobacco, it's uh, it's alcohol. And now, of course, it's fossil fuels. And let's take those out. So it's easier to do exclusionary investing because we think we've identified the bad guys. Yeah. Now, let, let me let me ask it this way, because because, you know, I was I was recently at a, at a conference where a, a very large, uh, almost as large as Larry Fink's firm, but a very, very large private equity shop. Uh, has a dedicated what they call impact investment fund. So it's not ESG, but it's it's the it's the mm-hmm. ESG with the positive perspective as opposed to the negative screening perspective. And their view was there is absolutely no um, uh, sacrifice on returns. We are getting the exact same return profile in our private equity portfolio and impact as we would be in uh, non-impact. Um, and we're not just like picking a company and making sure that they're doing good processes, we're actually picking companies that their end product or service is actually helpful. Um, and in that, in that uh, conversation, um, what I thought about was very, which I, I, thought, I thought was very interesting was, was it only works if you think about ESG or impact as a more of vertical allocation. Like think about like an allocation, uh, investment allocation approach for a high net worth person. You have equities, bonds, real estate, whatever it may be. And you can have an impact. And if it's impact, you can be very, very specific and very, very selective. But the problem is that th- I think ESG screening, that what you're referring to, is more mm-hmm. of a horizontal approach, meaning I don't care what market you're in, like ExxonMobil, you mentioned earlier in our discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't care what market you're in, the ESG has to be across the board every sector. Right. Maybe that's the error. I guess I'm asking in terms of if you thought about it in vertical terms as opposed to horizontal terms, does that make it more interesting for you as a skeptic? No, let's face it. If you look at ESG investing, the ESG funds, and you look at their 10 biggest holdings, six of them are tech companies. Right. There are some people in the world to whom tech, the, the tech companies, and of course, these are, of course, the, the FANG stocks. And you know, if I started naming them, they'd say these are the most evil companies on the face of the earth. That's correct. But the reason tech companies have historically been able to make these screens is the screens are disproportionately based on 
climate change. So a manufacturing company, no matter how well it's run and how caring its owner is, yeah. will never ever have be able to have less carbon emissions than a software company. What, what carbon emissions does a software company have? Maybe right. the software programmers eat too much in beans and who knows what they create, no? The data so, I, pretty heavy, yeah. so I think in a sense, it's been lazy. It's been lazy. So even the ESG measures have been so focused on fossil fuels that they really are not measuring goodness. Yeah. They're measuring carbon emissions. And if we follow that to its logical limit, then we avoid carbon emissions company. Are we really creating a portfolio of good companies are we just making a bet that over time, then investors will value fossil fuel companies less? I mean, let's be clear. If we're investing in ESG because we think we can make returns, let's take the goodness out of the equation. Let's make this about, hey, we're making a judgment about what markets are pricing in. We don't think that they're pricing this badness in enough yet. We're going to therefore get ahead of the game and get rid of these companies before the market recognizes. Yeah, the badness. And I think that if and that's what I meant about honesty, because in a sense, honesty here says this is nothing to do with goodness. This is everything to do with how we've traded historically. We're trying to take something that's not fully priced in. And in fact, uh, in my discussion of ESG, I said, when you see these studies that show that investing in good ESG companies deliver higher returns, the studies are fundamentally flawed because they're asking the wrong question. And deriving the wrong answer. And here's why. I mean, it's a, first, there's a direction of causality, which is how we measure ESG brings in factors that drive returns. Then we're going to find ESG. And I mean, I, I, the, the analogy I give is what if I told you that shopping at Whole Foods will make you richer? You're going to laugh at me, right? So what I can back it up with data. Here's a correlation matrix of how much people, money uh, people spend at Whole Foods and how rich they are. The correlation is like 0.93. You're saying, there, I showed you. And I think much of the ESG research has that, which means that if you're going to do good ESG research, it's got to be based on changes in ESG. Well, so let me try to understand what you mean. You're basically saying that the higher profitable companies are more likely the, to do the, the things. The ability, excuse me? Because they do the check boxes. They, you know, they, 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 can check the box, they can do the investment to check the box. Mm -hmm. I tell I tell people, look, you tell me how an ESG service measures scores and you have enough money. Yeah. I will check because I've seen this happen in business schools. You know where I've seen this happen in business schools? Because mm -hmm. until 1981, business schools were not ranked. Business Week in 1981 had the first, I think, business school rankings. And it was a it was a game changer because it meant that anybody shopping for business schools now looked at the rankings. And when it first came out, it hit business schools. They were blindsided. They'd never been. And over time, they learned how the services ranked them. Yeah. And guess what they did? They modified their behavior to fit this. And the schools that had more resources were able to modify their behavior more and therefore rise in the rankings. So I think the same thing with ESG scores is if you look at what ESG services look for to deliver a score, many of them require resources. Yes. In fact, do you know that as, as disclose, ESG disclosure data has increased, ESG scores collectively have gone up. Now, you could take the optimistic view say, look, as companies disclose more, they're becoming better companies, right? 
Or you could take the point of view that companies have learned the game and they're disclosing the data that services use, and you're getting the scores that those services now deliver based on. I mean, for instance, ESG scores consistently find that big companies are gooder. I'm going to use that word gooder, even though it's not gooder than small companies. By by definition, they will because they can can invest and check the boxes you're saying. Exactly, right? And we're creating a system. Now, I'll tell you the analogy. 25 years ago, we had a corporate governance issue in markets. You remember Enron and Tyco? So we said, we need to fix corporate governance. And we had academics writing paper about corporate governance. And then you had services measuring corporate governance scores. That's the the G, ESG, by the way. And investors, activist investors, basing investing on corporate governance scores. 20 years later, let me ask you a question. Are we better off in terms of corporate governance? I don't think so. I look around and I actually see more companies with two classes of shares or three classes of shares than I did 20 years ago. I see CEOs in a sense less constrained than they were 20 years ago. Hmm. So what is 20 years of corporate governance research? what What about transparency to the shareholders? We have 100 pages in every in every 10K on corporate governance. I will wager. And this is exactly where we're going to go with the ESG disclosure. We're going to end up with 10Ks with 300 pages of disclosure. And I wrote this on, dis- on disclosure separately. Yeah. We've got this disclosure dilemma, which is we have more disclosure than ever before. And instead of it leading to better behavior, it's actually leading to worse behavior. And I'll give you a guess. I'll, 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 I'll give you a sense of why I think it's happening. Okay. I'm not Catholic, but my wife is. And for the last 40 years, I've gone every Sunday. Really, I know when to stand up, when to kneel down. I'm you know. And of course, part of being a Catholic is confession, which is you go to, you know, so obviously I can't go to confession because I'm not a Catholic. But I think that this, uh, what I see with disclosure in general is essentially the equivalent of a wayward Catholic's use of confession. You know how a wayward Catholic uses confession? They sin all week, they confess at the end of the week, and they give two hour confessions. And they're told, do to, the priest says, you've lost the priest 15 minutes in. You know, you, and the good thing about two-hour confessions is you can put in the small stuff in, which is I coveted my neighbor's car with I murdered my neighbor's dog. You know, basically throw them all in. But because you put them all in, two hours later, the priest says, 20 Hail Marys and you're, 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 you're free. Good. So you do your 20 Hail Marys and you go back the next week and you commit. In a sense, disclosure, I think in a strange way, has led to the equivalent of what lawyers have always known, which is if you have a lot of, if you have bad stuff yeah. to get out, get it out in thousands of pages because people will never get to page 793 where you're confessing to your big sin. We're heading down a disclosure dead end where we're letting people add on more and more. See, let me get this straight. I I want disclosure, but I want it to be limited. And I want it to be narrow Mm. because we really risk creating a monster where we're going to get the disclosures we want, but not the behavior we want. That's interesting. I mean, let's 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 jump to 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 an assumption for a moment, if I may, Mm -hmm. that. ESG and that screening that's done by the uh, by the ratings agencies that are 
there's no correlation, as you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. But let's assume that they'll get their act together and they'll and they'll hopefully correlate at some level around standards. And let's also assume that ESG actually is injecting good values, whatever that word "good" means, into corporate uh, uh, into corporate world. Right now, the the the, the some of my clients may say, I don't care. I think it's good. And I want to invest in ESG. And I'm even willing to sacrifice, let's call it two or 300 basis points in annualized returns in order to do that screening. Uh, and then the outcome hopefully is good. Is that, do you look at that as a problem? I am absolutely okay with that. You don't even have to give 200 to 300 basis points. Give so about 50 you're, basis points. So, you're, so your, problem, your, your skepticism and chat and problem is, first of all, whether or not it actually will create good. And second of all, be honest, it'll probably have a drag on returns. That's the and, and, that and there's a third about. issue that you, you got to be clear about the fact that you're not creating good behavior on the part of all businesses. You're creating good behavior on the part of a subset of businesses that happen to be publicly traded happen to be in markets where you can put pressure on them. And the question you got to ask is, have you just driven that behavior elsewhere? Now, I'll give you an example. Let's take ExxonMobil, right? You say ExxonMobil, fossil fuels are bad. I want you to get rid of a third of your, or half of your, you know, ExxonMobil doesn't just shut them down and walk away. It sells them. It has a fiduciary responsibility. Right. So when publicly traded companies are told you can't do this, and I'll give you a a very concrete example, BHP, the mining company, to begin with, if you're a mining company, God help you, you're never going to be viewed as a good person. You're always going to be a marginally bad person, at least as an oil business. And in the realm of badness, an oil business is is worse than an iron ore mining business. Don't ask me how, what, what, what set of values drives you there. So you know what? They're putting pressure on BHP to sell its oil business. Okay. That's how you succeed. Exactly. That's exactly what the internal rationale is. So let's say they sell it. Where does it go? To some other it's going to go in the hand of a private equity investor. Private equity investors have invested more than a trillion dollars in fossil fuel assets because they don't care about the pricing. They get it at a low price. They collect the, I mean, the cash flows now on fossil fuel assets yeah. are running at about 30% of what you pay. I mean, the EBITDA to cash. You're collecting the cash flows. In three years, you get your money back. And then everything after that is gravy. And at $100 oil prices, it's going to be a lot of gravy for you. Yes, You still are getting the same fossil fuel production going on, but it's now in the hands of people who are less scrupulous than ExxonMobil because they borrowed money. They need to pay the cash. Then, I mean, th- their first inclination is we don't want to go bankrupt. We don't. Yeah. So I think sometimes but, but, you got to think through the... You're, you're yeah. correct, but, but, but Larry Finkin Co. is called Larry Finkin Co. Yeah. Institutional investor, the guys who actually give the money to the private equity funds to execute on a certain strategy, those guys are putting so much pressure on private equity funds to not, not invest. In okay, private- so that, that's an interesting question. BlackRock's pressure is selective. While they're doing all this stuff on one hand, they're also creating a China fund. I mean, let's face it, the ultimate end game for BlackRock is assets under management. <laughs> if it's going to cost them a trillion dollars, I don't care what they tell me. I know in the end, they're going to find a way to thread the needle. So mm. I think the people who are disproportionately feeling the pressure 
are CEOs of publicly traded companies in the US and Europe. Let's be very clear. This is not pressure that is being felt at least the same level if you're a Chi I mean, Chinese companies, but they feel no pressure at all unless it's from Beijing. So Beijing doesn't sign on to your ESG. You know, there's, there's the, the Chinese companies, they say, oh, the ESG guys are mad at me. Who cares? Beijing is okay with me. So I think we, you know, it's the, the mm. pressure is selective. And I think it, you know, so that engine 451, whatever that activist fund is at ExxonMobil, that has, you know, that that managed to get the backing of institutional investors to get ExxonMobil, they might have won a battle, but they might very well lose the war mm. if the war here is about, you know, fossil fuel and climate change over time. I mean, let's face it, after 10 years of ESG, the percentage of energy we get from fossil fuels has dropped from 84 to 81%. Yes. No. But, 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 the, but the technology that's been injected into the fossil fuel market is so significant that it's actually reduced. That, oh, I agree, carbon emissions, but the question so. is, does ESG have anything to do with that? Uh, I, I hope so, but you're, you're saying it's more of a zero-sum game with, with ESG. I mean, let's car. face it, you know, take, take the electric car market. Yeah. One man has done more for, for, uh, for that business than all of the ESG experts and funds in the world put together, right? Yes. You might not like the guy, but yes. Elon Musk has <laughs> essentially made every other automobile company think about electric cars. Yes. No. So it's been around for 10 years. You mentioned that the, the, we're, we're currently at our current uh, acronym called ESG, but there's been previous acronyms different. Is it here to stay? Is this, gonna, is this a long-term reality you know, that we as, as human beings, we'll always, I mean, let's face it, we're not uh, money-maximizing machines, yeah. right? As human beings... Values and I you know, and I firmly believe that we need to invest in ways where we can sleep at night because we're okay with what we've invested in. That's yeah. not something that ESG created, it's always been true. I think that uh, we will always bring the way the question is, what's the best way to do it, right? Now, Warren Buffett and, a, and, a, and a Bill Gates did it differently. They said, we're going to run the best business. I don't think in the 1980s, Bill Gates was sitting there, what's good for society while well, he was writing MS-DOS, right? He created the most effective software company, the greatest, perhaps the greatest software company ever. And guess what? He's entered into giving pledges. So the question is, what's the most effective way you make a difference in society? Is it doing what they did, which is to run the best and most effective businesses they can? And it's not just they that gave money. A lot of people got wealthy, got into Microsoft's IPO at the ground, and yes. they gave. So I think the question is not, do we give back to society? Do we care about our value systems? But who should be doing it? Should it be you and I as individuals? Or should it be corporate CEOs stepping and say, we'll make those judgments for you about goodness? That's what to me ESG is. Yes. ESG, in a sense, is saying, look, you, the unwashed masses, really have no idea what goodness really means. We will define it for you. We have services that will measure it for us. We have experts. ESG hmm. experts will come in and tell us what the right thing to do is. We'll direct your money for you. And that sounds incredibly paternalistic and elitist to me. So, and so I, can, can I push back on that, Professor, if I may? Because I, because I, I think it's a very interesting analysis. And I, and I know our, 
we've been going for a while. This is, this is, I, want, I want to push back a little bit on that just for a second, because this is interesting. Because the way some people of my client base may view it, and I sometimes may view it as well, is exactly the, the opposite, which is, no, it's the people like us, me and you, putting pressure on corporate CEOs that have the resources and the power to actually in, 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 imply or inject real change into the economy, into it's society. played out, played out in the... In the- and we're saying, I'm not going to buy your stock. Yeah. I'm not going to invest in your company. Unless That's absolutely. Which has always been the way that we've dealt with it, right? ESG goes beyond that. It goes beyond that in the sense of if it was all about investors selling their shares because they're not happy and yeah. walking away. That's right. Now, and I'd go further. Don't buy their products and services, right? Yep. Don't, you know. So I think if that's always been the option. So that's not an ESG option. That's always been there, right? Not, nobody stopped you in the 1970s if you said, look, I'm not buying shares in tobacco companies. They kill people. Nobody yeah. stopped you. What is this about a religion we've created that somehow claims that we're the ones who are allowing you to do it? Maybe all this is creating is enough people talk, mm. maybe there's a, it's like a social media function, which is to bring together people who hate tobacco or hate fossil fuels to one street. Maybe that's what ESG is, like a Facebook for investors who think right. alike. And yes. if that's what your marketing is, we're a platform, then maybe we should think about it as a social, I mean, you know, we don't need, to, I mean, I think if you think of it as a religion, which is what ESG is, 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 seems to have become, mm-hmm. which is you're either with us or without or against us you're either good or bad you're missing the point i can be against esg and do as much good or more good than somebody who's for esg i just think the pathway you take to making goodness show up isn't just by buying an esg fund or buying companies and putting pressure on them for esg it's by going out and acting my uh, living my life now, act more, talk less is what, what I would push on the ESG people. There's a lot, whole lot of talking going on. Yeah. And I mean, you, 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 you're fully aware of the greenwashing going on and how yeah. CEOs talk the green talk. We've taught people how to talk goodness. And in my experience, when I think about the good people I've run into in my lifetime, none of them has ever talked about how good they are. Yes. I mean, let their actions work for them. Mm. I would know. So, and the problem with disclosure is you're telling people talk more about your goodness. In fact, I know, I know, I am, I, I actually get contacted by ESG consultants. You know what their only job is to go into companies and t- teach them how to take what they're already doing and frame it in ways. Yeah. That'll be exciting. This is, you know, and it, it, we're in a dangerous game where that becomes the end game is do you, I mean, that's why my original talk was, do you want to do good or do you want to sound good? We're spending a lot of time sounding good, disclosing our goodness and not enough time doing good. Because if you did good, I don't think you would need to talk as much about how good you are. So, so in, in conclusion, Professor, what, what advice would you give to the high net worth community that wants to do good, that prefers to have some kind of a horizontal approach to ensuring their, mm-hmm. their investment portfolio is, in fact, uh, doing good, whether there's a, a sacrifice of returns or not. We'll put that aside for a second. But are you suggesting essentially to say, have your investment portfolio work for you, and then you can do your charity 
and you're and you're giving to society separately. Um, and don't pressure corporate CEOs to do good because you're really just going to greenwash the whole portfolio anyway. It's a waste of time, and you're probably just hurt your your wealth. Or are you saying are there better ways to measure? or better ways to screen, maybe on a, on a subjective basis, on a personal basis, to screen a portfolio? How, how would you uh, advise a high net worth client to do to go about that? I'd say the first question is, why are you doing it? If you're doing it because you feel that by investing your money in bad companies, you're contributing to things that you don't want happening in the world. For instance, you might say, look, you know, I really care about the way, you know, the way debates are happening in public. And I think Facebook is making them worse because it creates these little little windows where people who agree with each other talk to each other and there's never... Say, look, you know, I'm not buying Facebook. Okay, that's fine. I, I think as investors, I think we need to invest our values as well, which is if we don't like something, if we do value. But that value for you is going to be very different from me. I shouldn't be lecturing you saying you shouldn't be investing in that company. It's a bad company. Each of us, when we invest, has to make our choice in what's acceptable, what's not, what fails our moral code and say, okay, I'm not holding that, that company. That said, though, I think that there's no reason you, you know, you should not be pushing for change just as long as you don't make it your change right if you say look you know this is the this is the only way to do it you know there, there is no other point of view except the fact yeah. that on issues where there's disagreement companies are not the place to make them because my worry is we've seen what politics does to the rest of our lives we live in a world where everything becomes political sports has become political do you really want to have, I mean, I tell people, you know, if you want to make this, and this is part of the broader stakeholder wealth thing, put yourself at that decision table. You're a retailer. Yeah. You're thinking about opening a new store. You're five guys. I mean, they, they, they have full-time jobs. They have to decide whether to open the store or not. Tell me pragmatically how you would bring in all these other social values that you think into the decision and actually make a decision. So how do I bring in diversity? How do I bring in? So you measured five different degrees of goodness. How do I factor that? Because businesses have to make decisions on stores to open, inventory to keep, suppliers to pick. If on every decision you ask me to weigh these, I would be paralyzed as a business. Interesting. Yeah. So I think that, and that's why I think so many ESG experts are people who never seem to have, forget, forget about running a business or working in a business, wouldn't even know a business if it jumped out and kicked them in the face. Right. Because they see things like, and, and I think about it, so practically, how would you do this? I mean, this is all great in the abstract that you say you should bring in all these other forces, but businesses have to make these decisions 10 or 15 times a day some small, some big. How the heck do you do this and still run a business? So I think there are issues where there is no strong consensus. You either avoid the company, okay? Yes. Or you try to change the consensus. Maybe if you have enough money and you want to go out there and convince the world that this is something that they should care about, by all means do so. If you want to lobby the government and try to get rules, and by all means, do so. No, I, but, I recently yeah. heard somebody say they want to sue uh, 
BlackRock because, because they gave their 401k to BlackRock. And if they're, if they're pushing for non-shareholder centric return streams, then they're breaking their fiduciary responsibility as an investment manager to the 401k. So, I mean, I mean, you could, you could push through activism. And they're, and, but they're also doing it so badly. That's the yeah. problem, right? You look at the carbon transitions fund or whatever they call that. And somebody actually compared their carbon transitions fund with a regular ETF. It's almost, they're, they're like four stocks that they've excluded out of the 501 that they have. They're 497. The weights are almost exactly the same. Right. The only difference is they get five basis points on the regular ETF. They get 15 basis points on their carbon transitions. Forgive me if I am cynical and say, hey, this is a great way for you to attach an mm -hmm. ESG label to things and make three times the fees. But don't lecture me about goodness. I mean, I mean, it's it's to me when McKinsey is going around telling companies how to be good. I said, be very careful if you're McKinsey. I mean, after all, two thirds of fossil fuel companies use McKinsey as a yeah. consultant. You are in South Africa doing things that no legitimate consulting firm should be doing in the normal course of business. Right. You're now telling me how to be good. I mean, I don't, I, you know, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones and BlackRock and McKinsey live in really big glass houses. Yeah. And I'd be very careful of our, either of them lecturing the rest of the world on goodness. Super, super interesting conversation. That's why I really appreciate uh, your time, your insights, your expertise. Uh, and uh, I want to thank everyone for listening to the Definitely Uncertain Podcast by Goldrock Capital. And I hope everyone stays well. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you.